Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we're all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, The Gallery is offering our listeners 15% off their purchase by using the code 15OFF. That's 15OFF. Go to thegallery.com, that's the G-A-L-R-Y.com, so your wall will never be boring again. Your host, Greg Rotersheimer, is now a designated financial coach. If your financial situation is causing you stress because of debt, budgeting, or saving for retirement, and anything in between, contact me to discuss how I can coach you to financial success. Email me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or call me at 804 804- Five nine two one eight seven one for a fifteen minute free consultation to get started with your plan. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Two hundred fifty dollars a month into my child's five twenty nine from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for eighty percent of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables, right. so usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a, a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but at that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic is around health. Specifically, our guest suffered a stroke in 2014, and she has a book that details her experience, her challenges, and road to recovery, as well as gives the reader a lot of information about how to detect somebody having a stroke, as well as the relationships and how they developed while she was on her road to recovery. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in persevering and rising to the challenge for everybody, especially with the COVID-19 lockdowns. Her name is Marsha Moran, and after successfully building her business over the last 20-plus years, she thought she had life by the tail. Little did she know what was in store for her. She has written over 50 business plans and helped entrepreneurs strategize over how to differentiate their companies in changing environments. After her stroke, Marsha created Stroke Forward because she felt there is a need to share hope to stroke survivors and their caretakers, learning to become her own health advocate one step at a time and exploring holistic methods for healing were keys to her recovery. She speaks and shares her message of hope, inspiration, healing, and a way forward as she goes across the country. She welcomes new opportunities to help individuals affected by major health crises move forward. Marsha lives with her husband, Jim, two very loud cats, and two birds near Washington, D.C. Jim played a role of caretaker and advocate and contributed to Stroke Forward. His observations and experiences are captured in the book. Thanks, Marsha, for joining me today. Can you kick us off by talking about your background leading up to the stroke and, of course, the initial effects that it had on your life? I started my own company in 2012. And I help people rebrand their businesses. So I was on track to make more revenue than I used to make when I worked for somebody else, which I thought was pretty cool. And life was sweet. We had a vacation home at the lake. And my husband and I would go up there on the weekends to, well, he would stay at home most of the time and write. And I would go kayaking. So that's about it. Was it the career path that you had always envisioned for yourself? Was there any change in course that you planned prior to the unplanned? I actually hadn't necessarily planned to have my own business, but it seemed like the right thing to do in 2012. So I just went ahead and did it. And, you know, for three years, like I was on my third year, And I was looking at the revenue and looking at my my projections, and I was going, this is going to be a really good year. (laughs) And it wasn't. (laughs) Uh, I I guess the best laid plans, and that is to say the least for your situation. So, of course, a Sunday morning, you wake up to the unexpected, to say the least. Can you walk us through what that experience was and just what happened. Sure. So I woke up and I felt weird. 
And so I reached over and grabbed my phone and I texted my friend Rochelle to tell her I wasn't coming for breakfast. And the text didn't come out right. I couldn't read it. So I went, that's funny. And I put my phone down and turned over and had the worst headache imaginable. And despite the pain, I fell asleep. And the next time I woke up, I knew that I was in real trouble because I was paralyzed on the right-hand side, completely from the top of my head down to my toes. Since it was Sunday, my husband was home, and I could hear the TV on downstairs. So I knew that if I could get to him, he would get me to the hospital. So I rolled myself to the edge of the bed and fell down. And grabbed myself, or grabbed the carpet and pulled myself along until I got to the door, which was closed. And I don't know how many times I reached up to grab the handle, but I finally got it to sneak open. And I was so tired, I had to take another rest. And I don't know how long that was either. But I finally managed to drag myself down the hall and... I finally totally ran out of gas. And I knew that my husband would come up for a soda sometime. I didn't know when. But all of a sudden, there was a crash. And something fell. And my husband came home, or came upstairs, and he said, Marsha, are you all right? No went. I said nothing because that's when I found out I didn't have a voice. He said, can you talk to me? And I said, nothing again. And he said, I'm going to call 911. And I slowly nodded yes. He walked around the house for a little while and didn't see anything that looks out of the place. So he just came back and watched, watched for the paramedics with me. And you guys never figured out what exactly it was that made the loud crash that caught his attention, correct? We didn't. So I don't know what it was. He doesn't know what it was. So I can't tell you what it was. (laughs) I guess when you're dealing with something as lucky as that in a situation as dire as what you found yourself... Uh, as long as it happened, uh, regardless of the source, is what's mainly important to uh, to the story. And so it sounds like you're pretty well aware of what's going on. Like, for example, you fell asleep at one point, but then otherwise remember everything that was going on when you're trying to get his attention and uh, essentially call for help. And you said you didn't try or you didn't realize that you weren't able to speak until he actually came up. No other, I guess, kind of calls for help or anything before that point. No. And I think that's really weird that I didn't call for help, but I just, I didn't. And if I'd have found out that I couldn't speak earlier, it probably wouldn't have made any difference with (laughs) what I did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, you're still going to have to do the same thing that once you realize you don't have the voice that just like, you did do get to the door and get his attention somehow uh, continuing on what may have been lucky in the situation. The fact that it was a Sunday, what did your typical weekdays look like? Or could you have found yourself in a very different situation where he wasn't necessarily around or you would have been somewhere else that would have been a worse situation. He goes to work or he went to work because he stays home because of COVID, but he went to work at five o'clock every morning. And by the time I got up, he would have been long gone and he would have come home at five thirty. And with that much time gone, I'm just guessing I would probably not have survived. So <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty scary thought. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I would imagine at the time of everything occurring, you're just thinking about whatever you need to do right in that situation. But looking back on it, 
it certainly could have been worse. Next, after that, once the ambulance showed up, was there any period there where you don't recall getting to the hospital or are you able to walk us through pretty much that part of the story as well? The paramedics came and the first question they asked was, when did she have a stroke? And that's the first time my husband and I thought of the word stroke. I mean, we, we knew something was wrong, but nobody thought about the word stroke. So he was devastated. So I remember the paramedics loading me into the ambulance, and then I lost consciousness. The next time I woke up, I was in the emergency room, and they'd already done their tests on me. I had a hospital gown on. I had a needle in my arm, and I'm scared of needles, (laughs) or at least I used to be. And my husband was there in the room with me. And my, since he was there, that's all I needed. And I went back to sleep and I don't know for how long, but I will tell you that that day they took me for a walk around the nurse's station. (laughs) And I feel like, I mean, I got a little bit of the movement on my right side back. And the physical therapist came into my room and she said, okay, we're going to go for a walk now. And I'm going, yeah, right. (laughs) And she pulled out a belt about three inches wide and she put it around my waist. And she and my husband got me up. And she actually held me up as we walked around the nurse's station. And I'm not saying, well, I'm saying walked, but it's more like I clomped. (laughs) Because my left foot worked just fine, and my right one was like, uh, it looked like Igor on Young Frankenstein. (laughs) And when we got to my bed, I immediately laid down again and went back to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, I went to sleep a lot during the first few days. Was the walk to assess what kind of movement you had, or was there some other reason to get you up and moving at that time? The sooner they get you walking and moving, the sooner you are on the track to becoming better. If I had laid in the hospital for a day, several days, uh, my coming back from the stroke would be much worse. Well, that's kind of where I guess I was wanting to clarify because you mentioned even when the ambulance came and used the word stroke, and that was the first time it dawned on you and your husband. And I probably fall into the category of not necessarily knowing how to identify somebody that's in the middle of a stroke. And you, I feel like you hear that a lot, that it, it, that's one of the things that makes it very dangerous because for whatever reason, society <laughs> has conditioned us in some way that it's not one of the first things that comes to mind. So similarly with the initial treatment, which from what I do know, that does seem to be a theme that the more you do uh, as quickly as possible can significantly affect what the downstream impacts are going to be. So that is a good clarification. And I assume that uh, education is really a, a big part of what you do for making sure that people are aware if they find themselves in a situation where somebody can't speak or or some other symptoms, that stroke is something that they need to consider and act quickly. I post on my Facebook page and LinkedIn pretty frequently about what the symptoms are so that they're out there. And I also talk to stroke groups because I think people need to be aware. Of course, all the stroke people know what causes the stroke. <laughs> When caregivers are there, maybe it helps to remind them that, oh, yeah, these are the things I need to be looking at if somebody on the outside, make a neighbor or a friend or someone on the street just have has having a stroke. Them understanding the warning signs, regardless of, to your point, if they know what caused it, that's not really going to help in the initial identification and taking action, at least at that point. Obviously, you said you don't like needles. You're having to get up because that's what's helping. 
What else is going through your mind? Are you starting to look to the future as far as what does this mean and what's my life going to look like? Or are we a little too early in the process for that? Yeah, I didn't really think much at all. (laughs) And that's to say that when somebody came into my hospital room and said things like, you need to say the alphabet or tell me the first 10 numbers of the numeral system. I could do that. But as soon as I left, I forgot. (laughs) So it took a long time for my short term memory to kick back, if you will. So for example, I text my sister every day. And it took me sometimes two or three hours to remember what the keypad code was to get into my phone. (laughs) How long was your initial hospital stay? I was in the hospital for four days and I was in the rehab hospital for two weeks. And then that gets me to my next set of questions as far as rehab. (laughs) Tell me what that transition was. Well, yeah, the beginnings of rehab, because obviously (laughs) that was not the beginning and end. Uh, So emphasis on the beginning uh, what was that transition from straight inpatient stay to that first stint in rehab? And again, what were you thinking your mindset was at that point as you started to engage in? I assume it starts with some, well, I guess it's physical and mental rehabilitation right out of the gate, correct? Well, I got physical therapy, occupational and vocal therapy. And that's the only therapies I got. So I guess... I was okay mentally, which is a good thing. But so by the time I left the hospital, I had learned how to swallow. So they needed to, so they didn't need to worry about my choking, but I needed to learn how to brush my teeth, comb my hair. I learned how to walk, learn how to talk. Um, And it feels like, although I knew how to do things, I didn't know how to do things. So my mind would say, okay, just go ahead and take that step. And nothing's working. (laughs) My mind was thinking of all the words I had to say. And sometimes a small sentence would come out. Sometimes I would get gibberish. Sometimes nothing would come out. So it was interesting. I had, um, in all, I had four speech therapists. And in the end, they told me that they had done all they could to teach me to speak. And I was still aphasic. And so if people don't know what aphasia is, it's, you have, well, first of all, it's a language disorder. And you have three months, and if you aren't better by the third month, you probably will have it for life. So I was distraught by that because you don't know what it's like to apply for a job. Well, first of all, I was really excited that they liked me well enough to interview me. Right. And so the first time I had an interview, they called, we introduced ourselves. They said, tell me about yourself. And I knew in my head what I wanted to say and nothing came out of my mouth. They said, it's okay. Take your time. And still nothing came out of my mouth. By the third time I knew that it was over for me. And so they hung up and that was pretty painful because I used to be so, I wouldn't say eloquent, but at least I seemed to do pretty well in my interviews. And now I felt like I could do nothing. So my husband actually came home that night and I told him about what happened. And he said, Give yourself a break. This is your first interview 
after your stroke. You will do better the next time around. And he was right. I did better. But I still couldn't do the whole interview. I could do about maybe half of it. And that's when I realized that I probably wouldn't be working for somebody again. So I needed to do something for myself. Let me go back just real quick again to the difference between the vocal therapy and why I think originally in my head, I was thinking some amount of um, mental therapy, whatever that would be for memory. Cause you mentioned, you know, having trouble being able to remember things after the fact, is there a distinction at all from the diagnosis standpoint? And then ultimately what kind of rehabilitation you're going to have that would characterize knowing what you want to say, sticking with that example, and it just not physically coming out or not being able to come up with what you want to say, which in my mind, I guess I think of being something that's affecting uh, the mental aspect and not the physical speech or mouth making those movements. Did anybody in the medical world make that kind of a distinction? And how do they go about that? Or, or do they not? So I had aphasia, but there's so many different types of aphasia. So I had Brochia's aphasia, which is about, it's in front of my left ear. And that's where my stroke was. And so I could hear everything that people were saying, but I couldn't communicate back. Now, if I'd had Wernicke's aphasia, which is uh, behind the ear, I could probably hear them and speak gibberish back. There are some aphasias where people don't actually understand what's being told to them. It's, it's actually quite frightening. <laughs> um, but these are language issues. It has nothing to do with memory. So I think my memory was poor because my brain was just so out of sorts with being um, inflamed. My brain was so inflamed. That's why I think I probably had memory issues. And I think it's common for most people who've had a stroke to have short-term memory issues. Now, there are some people who have a stroke at the front of the brain, and their long-term memory issues are a long-term symptom. They, they don't get much better. Flashing back to your example with the job interview, what's the time frame there from being home from rehab to that job interview? So that was in August of 2015. So my stroke had been a year and um, five months previous. So I had three speech therapists by that time. And I had actually thought that I was doing pretty well. <laughs> now, I hadn't ever talked on the phone yet to anybody I didn't know. And nervousness continues to be a problem for people who have aphasia. So when I picked up the phone and introduced myself and they had the first question that they asked me, I found out that I didn't do well on the phone. <laughs> I also learned that I was fine at conversational level English, but when you got deeper down into thinking about what you would do for a company and everything around the role, I couldn't, there's no way I could t talk about that at this point. Makes me think of the fact that anything you try new, you're probably not going to be good at, but you got to keep on doing it to get better and better. Now, this is a very specific version of that, but I think I would agree with your husband that can't get too hard on yourself for that first try. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. Easy for somebody else to say, I guess, as far as not getting frustrated, but it definitely seems to follow into that particular category. And did you have certain experiences before you had had 
your stroke and into rehab that you would look back on in a similar manner to say, here was a challenge I had and I did what I had to do and overcame it. So I'm going to overcome this. Or was it all just so brand new and maybe a completely different level of frustration that you just had to take it as it came? I just had to take it as it came. There's, well, first of all, think about being, my left side worked perfectly and my right side was very damaged. And the the pain was actually quite bad for almost two years. So you have that to deal with where you don't sleep you th- don't sleep well. You sleep a lot, but you don't sleep well. Then you have to think about that there's no ability to speak well either. I mean, it just it's all a frightening. It, it's just also frightening to me. <laughs> there's no way I know to take that aspect and apply it to anything else that's happened. And going back to what you described of there being essentially a perceived time limit that if you don't reach a certain point within a certain amount of time, it's just not going to get better. Couldn't make it any easier to deal with, I would imagine. Yeah, but that is a falsehood. So as long as you think you can get better, you will. As long as you think, oh, I've reached my potential, and you stop trying, that's when you lose your way, and you actually get worse better than, rather than better. So I'm actually thinking I can still get better. <laughs> it's been six years, but I can still get better. And I'll be on this path for the rest of my life. Definitely the mindset to have for what you're going through. and. Needless to say, that is a mindset that people should have in general. (laughs) Always get better. Always be looking for ways to challenge yourself and to improve. So I think that's what is obviously very inspiring about your story and what you're continuing to do. And the mindset goes a whole long way in challenging yourself and ultimately being able to improve. So I guess with our story for the interview, we got a little bit ahead of ourselves. What was it like transitioning back to home initially? And what were the goals that were put in front of you to start to become self-sufficient? Well, for me, self-sufficiency is learning to do your exercises and doing them every single day. And in the hospital, in the rehab hospital, I did them. But you have to realize that some people, even when they're there in the hospital, they don't do them. So I think that a person gets better when they decide that they're going to work out every single day. My husband came home with a physical therapist and the occupational therapist, and they went through the house to see if we needed to add anything. And for me, we're lucky they added a chair for the shower. and a cane for me, and that's all that we added. Now, we came home together with the physical therapist and the occupational therapist that first day again, and they watched me walk up the stairs, and they told me that (laughs) I couldn't come downstairs again because I just, I was so bad on the stairs. I was just... And I didn't always use my cane. (laughs) So they said, just stay off the stairs for a while. Um, But it took me six weeks of walking around the house and working out. And I had a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, and a speech therapist that came to the house regularly. And after the six weeks, my husband and I decided to go outside for the first time and did our first walk, which was pretty interesting because I could look down 
at my feet, and that's it. My left hand wasn't moving. I'm sorry, my right hand wasn't moving. And I could just, I would walk forward normally with my left foot, and I would tell my right leg to lift your leg, move it forward, set it down. And that's all I did is I was thinking, lift your leg, move it forward, set it down for several weeks, actually. So it, it took a while. <laughs> That's completely understandable, at least for uh, where you were starting at. I'm curious, do you have any idea how far you went on your first walk? I am saying maybe half a mile. That seems really good to me. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I guess you want to have the mindset of not <laughs> not being satisfied uh, in- until you're getting to a level that you would expect, but... I guess as an outsider, thinking of somebody going through the rehab and having to reestablish, well, basically what you're used to, um, a half a mile's, I don't know, that that feels okay to me. But (laughs) based on your reaction, it sounds like you weren't very satisfied with it. (laughs) I think I probably was okay because I probably came back and fell asleep again. (laughs) (laughs) So I I noticed... It sounds like I fall asleep a lot, but I think that falling asleep is so important to recovery that if I was tired, I would just let myself lay down and sleep as long as I needed to. Um, And I think that's so important for people who are trying to get better that, you know, if you're tired and I don't know how many years it takes other people it took me three and a half years before I was kind of done having my super sleeps and stuff. So it, it just takes a while. I would also think that part of the energy drain is mental as much as it is physical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As you're describing, having to watch your feet go forward and watch all of your motions that takes concentration Okay, so after I learned how to move my foot forward, I then started thinking, okay, how do I move my hands? So I just thought forward, back, forward, back for, you know, a few weeks. And then, okay, my hand's moving forward and back. How do I make my fingers move? So, you know, it, it does. It takes a long time. What point or what goal did you have in mind where you considered yourself to be self-sufficient and it wasn't different than what the caregivers were saying those goals should be. I took over the reins the first time I drove my car and my husband said I was good to go. So it was August of 2014 and my husband had to go back to work and I still needed to have a way to get to my doctor's appointments. So he decided to let me try driving my car. And we went out to the garage. And now, mind you, it sat there from August 30th to, I don't remember what day in August it was, but so it sat there for probably four and a half or five months. And we turned the key over and it started beautifully. And that is important because I drive a 1997 Miata. <laughs> so start, starting is not as simple as one might think for a car starting. <laughs> yeah. And so, and it's, it's um, um, has a stick shift. So it was, could I move the stick shift into reverse and into all the gears? And so the answer is no, I couldn't move it into reverse with my right hand, but the left one worked fine. So we rolled it out to the sidewalk or to the street, and I shifted. And although it hurt, I could shift okay in all the forward-looking gears. It was just reverse that I had to move my left hand forward. So my husband said, you drove okay, but you cannot drive on the highway, and you were uh, – you can drive anywhere in a four-mile radius. <laughs> That's it. Um, 
except for doctor's appointments. And so I had to drive some sometimes for more than four miles for the doctor's appointments, but I was not on the highway ever. And probably I drove for three years before I actually didn't feel scared. I think that's an important thing for people to understand is that even though I was uncomfortable, I knew that if I stayed at home and didn't drive, I would be a completely different person. If we can even compare a little bit to the COVID lockdowns, people identify loneliness and isolation as obviously having its own set of issues. So I would imagine that that would certainly compound what you were having to go through. And speaking of comparisons to what the whole world is dealing with now, one of the stories that you highlight in the book is around your Ireland trip, which I believe is part of your anniversary tradition, correct? And and so you talk about having to postpone that. And again, in a different way, people can relate to that right now, not being able to travel anywhere. So what was your mindset when making that decision initially? And how did you change gears and reprioritize what you would be able to do in place of that particular trip? Well, I knew that, well, actually, anybody who looked at me knew that Ireland was out. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way that I could get on a plane and go. So we just decided that we would do Ireland for our 30th anniversary. And so first of all, neither one of us had been to Ireland. And it was so fabulous. We actually could walk because it rained very little. And I can remember walking up the cliffs and standing at the pinnacle. And the first thing I thought is, wow, I got up here. My second was, I'm scared. (laughs) I think I'm getting down now. I think for me, the awesomeness of Ireland was that I was there renewing my vows with the man who stood by me for 30 years. And when I had my stroke, I thought that he would get, you know, I, I don't need this in my life. I think we've had, we've had enough. I think I'm going to have a divorce from you. He didn't do any of that. He just said, this is what you need. I'm going to be here by your side. I'm going to take it one day at a time. And I'm so appreciative of that because I know it was, it was, it had to be bad for him. And yet he didn't blink an eye. He just kept right on going. One of the things that I really like about the way your book is set up is you go through, of course, what your experience was, but throughout the book, it also has what his experience was throughout the process. And to me, it is great that it highlights there, of course, is the person that has a stroke, but there is also all of the people that are around you. And of course, you have perspectives from from other folks as well in the book. As a whole, what were some of the primary challenges that you faced? Clearly, as you're saying, it strengthened your relationship in probably many ways. Just talk about that relationship or, or your relationship, I should say, as you were working through this. Like I said, he I didn't even think he batted an eye. He, he rearranged his schedule, including his work schedule, around my needs. 
So for the first two weeks, he took off. And after the second week, he took half days off so that he could be in the rehab hospital when I had my rehab hospital going on. So when we got home, he worked, he decided that he would work remotely and his employer let him until I think it was probably mid-August, which I think was remarkable. He did all the cooking. He did all the housework. He took care of the cat. He did everything. And I remember the first time I got really angry at him was two and three-quarter years after my stroke. So... I mean, I was annoyed sometimes, but the first time I was really angry was he asked me for directions, and I didn't give them back in time. (laughs) And I got angry. It's like, okay, well, think about that. (laughs) Why are you angry over directions? (laughs) Yeah, I can't say enough good things about him. Again, even just the way it's laid out, in the book, every step of the way, you can see how um, clearly you were operating as a unit uh, to, to get what you need to have. And also another lesson that can be learned and what's going on right now from the standpoint of employers. Luckily, he was working for somebody that would allow him the flexibility to do what needed to be done. And of course, uh, people with children, for example, are dealing with that right now. And are really seeking that kind of flexibility so that they can take care of their family matters. And from my perspective, that is definitely what comes first for anybody. So another lesson learned, I think from the story is to make sure that family comes first and uh, career certainly is second. And in my opinion, a lot of ways, a very distant second. And then, yeah, there's of course other, um, uh, excerpts from other people in your life as you were working through uh, rehab. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about how your relationship was with other folks around and how that maybe even shifted as you were uh, as you're continuing to work to get better and better? So my sister and I have had a pretty good relationship my entire life, but when I had my stroke she and I started texting each other um, every day. We started texting about two weeks out. And (laughs) she came to visit me when I was in the rehab hospital. So you have to realize that she lives in Seattle and we live in Virginia. She is a CPA and she came to visit me in August before taxes were due. (laughs) And the first time I saw her walk through the door, I cried. (laughs) So I cried every time I saw my family. And it's not that I was sad by any means, but I had problems controlling my emotions. So (laughs) even though... I saw my family and was delighted to see them, except for when they left. I cried and cried and cried. (laughs) And that lasted for probably two or three years that I couldn't control my emotions every time I saw my family. But we became, my sister and I became closer because we started texting each other every single day. And that's really amazing. So six years later, we still text I'm going to say almost every day because I miss one now and then, but I can't imagine not having her to text with anymore. Yeah. And one of those things that I guess certainly silver lining, uh, you don't want to have to go through something so severe uh, to gain such a connection necessarily, but 
being able to have that, I'm sure was and is uh, very significant. So uh, while maybe you got tired of crying eventually, <laughs> at least, hey, it's an outward show of the connection, right? So <laughs> while I'm sure there was some annoyances of uh, from a control standpoint, it, at least it's coming from a very genuine place. So, I mean, that's really great. And then the book concludes with you finding your passions Painting, I know, is one that's highlighted. And then, of course, speaking engagements, obviously the book itself. How did you come about those or these things you always wanted to pursue and now had time once you realized maybe going back to the regular work world wasn't going to happen? How did that all manifest itself? I'm going to start with painting. So I took painting lessons for the first time ever (laughs) after my stroke. So... The painting happened because my sister, we were out visiting her and she had a lesson one night. So we all just went to a lesson. But after that, I just took painting on because I liked doing it. I didn't have any lessons. Well, after I had my stroke, I had no movement in my right hand. So if I took painting lessons, I would learn to draw a circle again. Well, Okay, it's not really a circle, but at least it likes kind of like a circle. And it would it created a motion that required some a steady hand. It required me to really put down on the pencil or the pen or the paintbrush long uh, strokes that are strong enough to carry through. So that helped me. Um, writing a book, I actually started writing it a year after the stroke occurred. And I wanted to write because I wanted people to understand that there are things out there that are maybe not in the normal world of medicine, but it's, there are some things in the holistic world that if they look at someone who does acupuncture or someone who does neurofeedback, they can get better. And I think I wasn't so open to that before the stroke, but after the stroke, I so much needed my muscles to relax that I would try anything if I thought it would make me better and I knew it wouldn't hurt me. Um, And when I got the book finished, it took me a while to really believe in myself and publish it. So even though I thought people needed to read it, I needed to believe in myself enough to publish it. Believe it or not, it took a while to get that inside of me. I would say that's another lesson that applies to all of us, really, of self-doubt and somehow thinking you're not good enough or imposter syndrome, I feel like, is a hot term right now when people speak about not feeling like they deserve success. So you're certainly not alone in that overall self-doubt. And you also joined like Toastmasters, right? So I joined Toastmasters and it took seven months for me to stand up and give my first speech. (laughs) And the day of the first speech, when when she called my name, I went up to the front I had a PowerPoint presentation just in case I couldn't say anything. And I really didn't know if I'd say or I'd speak or not speak. And the first sentence came out and it went perfectly. I went, <laughs> the next sentence started and I just lost it. And I didn't know if I would be able to speak or not. So I tried that sentence six times. And on the sixth try, I got through the sentence, I finished my speech, I sat down, and I was so so proud of myself. (laughs) Not because my speech was any good, (laughs) 
but because I actually had finished it. Yeah. So I was delighted. And actually, I found Toastmasters to push me to become better at not only speaking, but leadership. Do you still do Toastmasters today? I belong to six clubs. So yes. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit in your spare time. Yeah. So I want to pair it back to three clubs, maybe four. But I was an area director this last year, so my membership is in two more of the clubs that I wanted to be. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm going to pair back to three or four. That seems like a a reasonable number. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Well, I think all of the experiences that you've had are lessons that whether it's other people that have experienced stroke or other uh, traumatic brain injuries can take in their journey. I know that part of what you do is offer, I think, a community uh, of people that are uh, going through these challenges. But as we've pointed out numerous times, your strategy of forcing yourself to try something new getting up to the challenge, even if the first time it didn't go the way you were hoping or expecting and continuing to do it until it improves and improves is absolutely a lesson that people should be taking with them in all of their lives. And again, with the frustrations going on globally with the pandemic, people need to continue to realize there will be a light at the end of the tunnel and we will have our new normal as we say it will be a new day and it'll be uh, more good things to come marsha before i let you go please give your information for the book as well as any contact info or where people can find you on social media or maybe even any events or promotions you might have going on people can buy my book on amazon and they need to just search for a stroke forward My website is strokeforward.com. My Facebook is strokeforward. I'm at Twitter at stroke underscore forward. And they can get me on LinkedIn if they look up Marsha Moran. Very cool. And of course, I will put all of your information into the show notes so folks can easily get a hold of you. Again, I really appreciate you joining the show and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.